0: Welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. That's me, and I'm so glad you're here. If you like what we do, I'd love it if you gave us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're so compelled, write a review. That really helps, and maybe tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. If you want to get involved in the program, visit our website, talkingbeats.com, and click Support the Show, where you can make either a one time or a recurring donation. As we look to continue having cliché-free conversations of real substance with a diverse range of the world's most compelling people, your support is so appreciated, especially as we look to expand and increase our offerings. If you have a question, comment, or thought, find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or if you wish to reach out directly, email me at daniel at talkingbeats.com. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get on with today's conversation. On today's program, episode 101, A New Century, so to speak, for Talking Beats, I thought I'd change it up a bit. A lot of people have been asking about me, more about my background, what led me to start this podcast, etc. So I thought the best way to handle all this was to switch chairs and put myself temporarily in the hot seat. I'm handing over the reins for today to the inventive and intrepid producer of this show, Doug Christian. He's been in radio and music, as you'll hear, for decades. He knows his stuff, but he's curious and open-minded, all the things we like in these parts. I have no clue what we're going to talk about, so here's our producer, Doug Christian, interviewing me. Let's see where he brings us.
1: I have no idea where we're going here, but I know where we're going to start and where we're going to end. Okay, so where are we going to start? (laughs) We're going to start, uh, Daniel, with your... uh, very early life, and uh, find out exactly where you are from. I know you're in a—we're born into a family like most of us, and uh, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about the family you were born into.
0: Okay. Well, um, yeah, I was born in New Hampshire, grew up in rural New Hampshire, about 30 minutes from Dartmouth College, from Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, And uh, people in my family, parents, are are book people. Dad is in fiction— Novelist. Mom is the head of graduate writing up at Dartmouth College. And, and my older brother, Saul, uh, who you've heard before on this program, is, uh, is in writing himself. Uh, and they're all great music lovers. And uh, I wasn't the first professional musician uh, in the whole family, in the immediate family, yes. Um, but there are certain professional musicians. Dan has a cousin, Nina Laltek, who is a very famous Russian concert pianist, and a few other Musicians sprinkled around the family, so that's in there somewhere,
1: and I think the love of people is um, is definitely there, too. Uh, tell me, uh, you started music at a very young age, you know, I can understand that because I did that, too. Uh, when did you start knowing this was going to be the focus of your life? There was a
0: time when I was about two and a half or three years old, and it's a story I've told a lot, but I don't know if I've told it around here before, where... The local science museum, uh, which is a, an excellent museum, the Machar Museum in Norwich, Vermont, was putting on a demonstration for kids uh, to show how sound was carried through the air. And that is the sound waves. And they had hired a cellist to come in and play the cello for all the kids who were in the audience and say, look, when I draw the bow across the strings, you can literally see the string moving in the pattern of the sound waves, you know, that the sort of undulating curving over and over, pattern like waves, and afterwards the cellist invited all little kids in the audience to come feel the top of the cello with their hand, and you could feel, I hate to use the word literally twice in one story, but you could literally feel the sound vibrations traveling through your hand through your arm, through your elbow shoulder, everything, right into sort of the depth of your body I said, God, I I gotta play the cello, and uh, (laughs) I didn't start till I was four and a half, it was tough to find a really good teacher in rural New Hampshire then, but luckily someone came up just around the time uh, that uh, I was still saying I want to play, I want to play, which was almost a year, year and a half after I first saw the cello. But I heard the sound too, and just fell in love with all of these great cellists, with of course Yo-Yo Mann, Rostropovich and Dupre had all these names floating around my head, and I thought to myself, wow, well that's a great sound, wouldn't that be cool if I could try to make that Myself,
1: uh, now wait a minute here. You were very small, and the cello is not a small instrument. Are there various sizes of this instrument?
0: <laughs> yeah, there there are, and in fact, I, there's actually a tenth size. Although I started on an eighth size, um, the uh, <laughs> the eighth size is small enough that uh, I had an uncle who was very tall once who came over and he held it up like a viola or a violin on his. <laughs> on his uh, up on up on that high position, holding it up um, right on his shoulder, um, and uh, so yes, there are small cellos, and they and they usually have small sounds as well, uh, but nonetheless, they have an end pin, and it, it looks like a cello, and and, uh <laughs> and and it is the same range uh, as a normal cello. It's just just a mini version.
1: Now, because you have hands that are growing. And uh, you have an ear to develop because the, the cello, like a lot of instruments, depends on your ear and your hand working together. There's a lot of instruments like that. Trombone is one. Uh, string instruments are one. Where positions to be accurate are, are, are takes takes a lot of time. Now, as your hands grew, and as your ears developed, uh, how did that work together?
0: That is. A great question. The challenge is, well, one of the many challenges is that when you first start, you have these little pieces of red tape that go across the fingerboard, and they show you where to put your fingers, where to put finger one, two, three, and four. And eventually, of course, that red tape has to come off, because as you know, cello, like the other bowed string instruments, doesn't have frets. So these act as sort of frets. Uh, so. At some point, the teacher has to say, okay, your muscle memory is now powerful enough that you're not really needing these red bands going across the fingerboard to know where to put fingers one, two, three, four, whatever. So those come off, but you're right, the hand grows, and ideally the instrument grows with you, but of course, we don't have in between sizes. We don't have eighth and quarter and ten sizes in between. Uh, we have <laughs> those, so so it is an awkward time looking back on it, where your hand is obviously growing bit by bit by bit, but the cello, how often you get a bigger size instrument, <laughs> isn't growing with you except when you jump up. So it's it's an interesting thing, you know, th- th- with regards to the ear. There's nothing more important in music, as you know, than an ear. There's there's nothing more crucial to being better. And better at an instrument than training your own ear. And now it's very easy to listen to other people. It's very easy to critique others and hear details and hear different shadings and colorations in other people but what's so difficult is training your ear to hear yourself as you're playing and that's something that I work on every day. That's something that all musicians work on every day. It's the refining of the ear but you're right, in the sense that the hands are growing, so you have this physical thing happening. It's very foreign, the the feeling of holding a, a instrument, especially the bow, is extremely foreign. Uh, and you're trying to hone in the ears at the same time because it's one thing to say, oh, that note was out of tune. But it's another thing to say, it's out of tune, and how can I correct it? How do I correct it quickly? Uh, there was a famous story about the great violinist Heifetz, who we've talked about here on this show, Yasha Heifetz, who said, I, I don't necessarily play more in tune than anybody else, but I correct faster than everybody else. <laughs> and so so that the the split second where, where he feels, oh, it's not quite right, you know, that, that D sharp is just a little out, and it's corrected so quickly you don't even notice. I mean, that that's the whole process that starts as a kid when the teacher says, you know, to the six-year-old, that wasn't great, and this note was a little out of tune, but, but why was it out of tune? And it's the why that is so crucial, I think, for teachers to ask.
1: Now, I started, uh, like most of my siblings did, at six years old with piano lessons. Uh, I had a hard time being interested in the piano at all. And uh, what was your experience? Why did you persist uh, from a very young age? What kept your interest in that instrument that you now play? First of all,
0: I'm sorry you didn't love piano as a kid, but I'm glad you grew to love music because you, for people who don't know, <laughs> you are a great, great music lover, and uh, you, you played amateur, what, guitar or keys? or
1: I play um, about three instruments.
0: Three instruments. And, and you, you know more about music generally, uh, all kinds of music, than almost anybody In the world, and and indeed, that's evidenced by your your daily (laughs) emailings. I'll get back to your question in a second, but I just want to say that that's evidenced by your daily emailings of uh, what's called Creole Radio 1, which is a compilation of different musics, different songs, different bands, different artists. Uh, Every day, a selection of, what, three or four songs?
1: Yeah, about nine to 12 minutes, something like that.
0: Of a ridiculously... Diverse and wonderful music and you always write an explanation of what it's all about. Um, so, it, that, that's all to say that your passion for music wasn't quelled by you not loving piano and as a kid. And that's something important to recognize because it happens a lot of times where a kid doesn't love music and then it, because they have some bad memory from when they were a kid or something like that and then as they become an adult they, they can't shake that. So I'm so glad that you were able to <laughs> get past a non-loving studying piano as a kid and you now are I'd say one of the most passionate knowledgeable people about music period okay so that, uh, that being said I never had a moment where I didn't want to be playing the cello not to say that I always wanted to be practicing because there's a lot of things to do as a kid there's a lot of distractions uh, friends and all the rest but there was never a time when I felt why am I doing this it was always I love this so much I want to be doing it more and more for for a time I was about 9 to 12 I was obsessed with opera and really I was obsessed with two operas La Boheme and Don Giovanni and I listened to them all the time and I thought there was some great, great glamour and some great appeal in a real star operatic tenor you know Pavarotti was absolutely my idol for a few years and I thought okay well you know, I was a rather gifted boy soprano. I had sung Mendelssohn's Elijah and things like that. And, uh, of course, wow, if I could be an operatic tenor. Now, that didn't happen because after my voice changed, I realized, uh, God, I don't really know how to sing anymore. <laughs> I had to be totally retrained. So there was Cello, uh, who had been with me since four and a half, five. And I was totally... Uh, sort of fell re-in love with it, not that I ever fell out of love, but I think it, but the sort of glamour and the drama of opera took over for a little bit, but in any case, uh, I always wanted to play the cello, and I I was never, I was very lucky that I never had parents who stood there with a whip, you know, must practice 10 hours a day, you know, or you're not getting dinner, something like that, which I, I have friends who have had that experience, and it's not very pretty, uh, but it was always just it has to. Uh, there, there was some young cellists around me, and then uh, when I started doing youth orchestra in Boston, there were some uh, f- fantastic uh, sort of community. So once you get into being around people who feel like you do, it it, it changes. I remember the first time I went to music camp. Uh, this is like summer camp, except you go practice your instrument there <laughs> for people who don't know what that is and. And uh, I went up to Maine, up to a camp called Camp Encore Coda. Uh, and in the woods of Maine, and it has all the camp activities, archery and swimming and the rest. Uh, but then for a lot of the day, you do your instrument, you practice, you do chamber music, you do orchestra, uh, you do private lessons. And I think the first time I went was between 6th and 7th grade. And just the feeling of being around people who felt like I did about music, who felt like I did about the instrument, who were passionate about sitting down alone and practicing for a few hours and then coming all together to play orchestra, to play Dvorak or Beethoven symphony. That was a real groundbreaking thing because when you're in rural New Hampshire and you're the only person who has anything to do with classical music other than the teacher you see once a week, it and certainly the only person your age, it, you know, it, it can feel a little strange uh, what am I doing again? But when I, you put it into context, when I went to camp for the first time up in Maine and was around really good people, I had a great teacher, I thought to myself, oh, this is really a connection to the bigger world. And then that was amplified a million times when I started going to Boston for youth orchestra and private lessons at the beginning of high school. Then, then it's sort of, then you're so far on the train, you don't even think, uh, wait, what's this whole music thing about it? It's your world. It just becomes your world. It, you don't even know how it happened.
1: <laughs> well, let's move on past the learning phase here. What was your first paying gig? Well, that's interesting.
0: The, the first time I ever made money from the cello was probably playing a wedding in in 8th or ninth grade. So I, I think that's the first time I, I ever got a paycheck from putting the bow on the string was when I, I got connected to the... Wedding uh, service uh, through Dartmouth College, and I, I had a few wedding gigs, and I hired a string quartet from down in Concord, New Hampshire, and I said, uh, "Yeah, you want to drive up here to Hanover and uh, play a wedding and uh, make some money? And, you know, two hundred, two hundred fifty bucks a person in eighth or ninth grade is, is, you know, that's that's some real money." And uh, and so that was that was the first time I ever had the idea uh, that there was. Well, you know, a little you know paycheck involved, which was great. Then in, in school, I uh, went to school at the great Jacob School of Music at Indiana University in Bloomington. Then I joined a couple of regional orchestras in Indiana where I go play every few weeks, and uh, and they paid pretty decent. Of course, it wasn't full time, but uh, they paid pretty decent, and it was a real first taste of you know professional orchestra life. You 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 come in, you're quiet, you come on time, you bring a pencil, you're prepared you don't sight read you know your music you sit down don't open your mouth uh you're serious you know that that, that was the first time i i was around a, a serious orchestral setting that wasn't in school or at a festival where the feel was much much more business like and much more strict uh and it was great
1: <laughs> yeah i was reading van morrison um looking looking him up for something and he had a statement saying that uh, music is spiritual, and the music business is not <laughs> that is
0: great that is fantastic um <laughs> you know there's some truth that there's some truth in that and <laughs> and the question is, can the two coexist at the same time and I would say yes in an ideal world, but that doesn't mean they always do <laughs> but when for example, the uh, idea of getting along with everybody you work with is just ridiculous and and you know getting in fights and getting in confrontations and having some colorful language thrown around that's all okay, that's all to be expected. That's that's you know passionate people, but the whole point is to at least when you're playing the concert be able to put all that aside uh, and say to yourself, okay, I'm here in the service of Beethoven. I'm here in the service of Sarah Vaughn, or whatever, or any kind of music that's on the on the music stand that day. I, I think you know Starker put it best. Janis Starker. He, he said a, a real professional has the same amount of dedication every concert, every rehearsal, no matter what's on the stand. It doesn't matter how much you like the piece, how much you appreciate the music, or, or think it's the biggest piece of crap of all time. And there's a lot of bad music out there. But the point is, you put the same amount of dedication to it that you would your favorite piece, that you would anything that you're passionate about. It doesn't really matter in the end because your job is to do the best job with whatever's on the music stand that day. I try to do that. Try. We all try, I
1: hope. Well, music is, when you're playing with somebody, it doesn't matter what, how large or how small the organization is, the conversa- it's a conversation that revolves around what you're playing. So you're holding a conversation with uh, whomever you're playing with about the music. Is that what you feel? In an ideal
0: world, again, getting back to that ideal world, yes, it is a conversation. But it's hard to have a conversation with someone who isn't good at talking.
1: <laughs> we're having a great
0: <laughs> we're, we're having a great conversation now. Uh, so if we were to play music together, it'd probably feel great. Some people are less good at communicating or less interested in communicating. Some people play with blinders on where they say, it's either my way or the highway, man, and this is how I'm going to do it. I I, I can't stand that way of doing it uh, because there is very little room for interaction or creativity left. Now, not that everybody has to go wild every concert, but there has to be some acknowledgement that what you're doing has something to do with what the other person is doing. I've I played with people before who play terrifically well who are extremely gifted players. They never play a note wrong. They have a great sound. Everything's fine except the communication is so uninteresting. The dialogue, the conversation is so bland. Now, other people maybe make more mistakes in quotes. They'd have a few more wrong... not wrong. No, they'd have a few more questionable moments say not technically as 100 percent perfect but they're so involved in the give and take in the back and forth of the expressions of the phrasing that you can't help but love it you can't help but totally forgive them because you have this great conversation going on so yes in an ideal world there is a conversation happening and music is so conversational you can hear it in a string quartet of beethoven when one violin plays one thing and then right afterwards the other plays another and you feel like they fit together two parts of a puzzle or like a yin and yang and they complete sort of a musical picture and you could imagine that having words instead of notes and then you would say oh yeah it really is like people talking and, and that's the goal of a, a lot of music is to, uh, is to have this communication without words but it's still a, a back and forth.
1: Now you... Are a professional musician, uh, you play with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. What was your path to where you are right now uh, w- you know exactly what organizations did you play with before you came to us?
0: I had done a lot of chamber music, I had done a lot of festivals. I had done lots of recitals. I had done lots of orchestral playing here and there uh, i hadn't been with an orchestra full time, and I thought to myself, you know uh, there's so many great things about. Being with an orchestra full time, uh, that uh, I wanted to explore, and I had a few friends who were in the orchestra, and uh, I had some other people I knew who lived in New Orleans, and I just heard wonderful things about the city, uh, so I uh, was able to uh, see there was an opening for the associate principal cellist, and uh, went down, took the audition, and you know, there's not that many full-time orchestras in the country, so. Uh, being able to, to play right in the front, right up there next to the conductor, where it's really exciting, playing principal a lot of the time, that's great, and it's a great exhilarating feeling to be in such a, a wonderful hall as, as the orchestra has, as the Orpheum Theatre, uh, which has such a history, and being in a place that is so appreciative and puts so much value on music. Uh, a lot of people think of New Orleans as a great jazz city, which it is, but Uh, there's a long history of classical music there. The first opera house in North America was in New Orleans. A lot of major operas had their North American premiere, including uh, Rossini operas, uh, Gounod operas, all had their premieres in this continent uh, in New Orleans. And, of course, the symphony goes back almost 100 years or so. It is a, uh, a, a pretty unique place to make music, I have to say.
1: Now, you have been across the world and uh your educated education in other places rather than the united states started rather young could you tell us about that
0: absolutely you know i I always was lucky because i was traveling from a young age and uh, various things my family did made it possible for me to spend for example kindergarten in jerusalem now that's great because i just started cello actually then i had started cello in Amherst, Massachusetts, and then suddenly we were off to Jerusalem. Well, not suddenly, but maybe suddenly for me. Uh, and uh, so so here I am with the cello, having just started the cello in kindergarten in Jerusalem, uh, and I have this um, wonderful French teacher uh, going to kindergarten there. So there's this whole cultural thing, you know, this this uh, speaking Hebrew uh, in kindergarten, then, then going to... I can't remember if the lesson was in in French, Hebrew, or English, uh, I, I'd have to look back at the history books for that one. Learning cello, being in kindergarten, being in a very foreign place. Jerusalem doesn't have much in common with New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> and, and and that that was one of the earliest sort of educational moments. I mean, I, I consider every bit of traveling I've done sort of educational in a sense. And And by the way, I consider every time I play the cello to be educational too you mentioned before well that was your education and now there's this I don't find any break between the two the only difference is is when the when there's money involved there's 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 money involved but but that doesn't mean or shouldn't mean that someone's education stops I was just listening to uh Bach cantata this morning uh, BWV number four and it's one I very much like and every time actually I listen to music not just play every time I listen to music and play I think I'm I'm learning something, I know I'm learning something, even if I'm not really thinking, hmm, what's he doing there? What's he doing there? How, how can I, quote, learn more? It, it, it just gets absorbed, and I think that's the same thing with all the traveling I've done, that it's in there somewhere, and I, I'm lucky as hell for that.
1: Now, you uh, have started a podcast, in fact, we collaborate on this. I am uh very happy to be behind the curtain of anonymity here. And uh no longer, no longer. <laughs> yeah, I know. I uh, know it's too uh, bright <laughs> out here. Anyway,
0: <laughs> you can go back soon in about 20 minutes. Oh, <laughs> okay,
1: good. Good, good. But um in in this podcast that uh, we are conducting at the moment called Talking Beats with Daniel Lelchuk, you have had conversations with many, many people who are not in the music business, but in politics, in education, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Where was the seed for this?
0: This goes back a long ways. This A lot of things tie together, but I'm glad you asked, because when I was a kid, I always loved, when I was around, I mentioned that opera phase when I was, you know, at nine to 12 years old or something like that. I remember going to Radio Shack and getting all these different microphones, and then the downstairs neighbor had a different, sort of, one of those um, mini, uh, you probably know what I mean, it's like a mini mixing board, one of those, you know, black uh, boxes with maybe three or four different Slides on it. What, what would that be called?
1: I, that's that's what it is. It's a mixing board, mm-hmm. a board, a
0: mini, yeah, <laughs> a, a mini board, yeah. And so, plugged in the Radio Shack microphone, had a mic stand. And this is when I was ten or eleven years old, and and set it up on a folding table instead of a camera, and I wanted to do some talking about Don Giovanni, which I did, which I did on camera, and it's, it's it's quite charming uh, as <laughs> as I rewatch it now. So there was always a love and appreciation for microphones. Uh, you know, cameras, too, are fun, but I think microphones and audio always fascinated me, so fast forward to, well, actually, before I fast forward, I'll just say that interviewing people was, interviewing, I'm putting loosely in quotes, interviewing people was something I, I liked to do from when I was a really young kid, even younger, from probably when I could talk, which is just sort of asking people questions, and I would sometimes drive people crazy with the questions I asked incessantly, over and over and over, trying to find out information, and uh, uh, sometimes, you know, questions that could be considered invasive when I was a little kid. Okay, that that, that was there. That That's fine, and I'm I'm happy all that happened. I, I think that's <laughs> buried, too, in, in the DNA somewhere. Now, fast forward way, way uh, into the future, meaning into the past, but into the future from then, and, uh, and I got my first opportunity to be behind the microphone in a big way from Tom Fitzmorris, who used to host a show on WWL Radio in New Orleans called The Food Show. And that was a show that was on three hours a day, six days a week. Uh, and it was a live talk radio show. Uh, am I describing it correctly? You know this pretty That'll well.
1: Work. That'll work.
0: And, and it, was a, it was a call-in show on commercial radio. And uh, he, he ran into me one day. He was a big music fan. For folks who don't know, he's a, he was a well-known cookbook writer and radio host and, and he, yeah and his cookbooks are on New Orleans food are fantastic. Uh and so he was a big music fan and he ran into me one day and uh he, I had been calling into the show this to sort of learn something about the cuisine, the rich cuisine of New Orleans and he'd come up with his name for me the gourmet cellist and I thought that sounded really good, it rolled off the tongue. Uh hell of a lot more than the gourmet violinist or the gourmet oboist. <laughs> I ran into him one time and he said, "Hey, you uh, you know a lot about food, and you're great at talking to people. You have a good voice. Do you want to host the show? I'm going to be gone for a week. So I said, sure. Uh, and then I got there, and I'm like, oh, God, three hours. How the hell do I fill three hours? So I thought, well, you know, just start talking and uh, maybe take some calls if people call in, and I'll interview some people. So I lined up some really big people to interview. How? i not exactly sure. I said, I'm a cellist. I'm going to be on WWL Radio. Uh, So there was Ming Tsai, and there was John Besch, and Jacques Pepin, and uh, people like that, big, big big-time chefs. And I had a great time doing the show, and I had a great time interviewing people. But as I think I mentioned to you sort of in those early days of working on the food show, when Tom was gone filling in, I said, you know, I really love interviewing people. I love talking to people, uh, but I don't want this to be limited to food. And so I had the idea for sort of an interview show, and it was kind of nebulous. What was it going to be? I was putting out feelers, and I was asking people, what do you think, what do you think? And people would basically tell me, uh, stay in your lane. You're a musician, and you've hosted the food show quite a bit, quite successfully on, on a big commercial station, so, so you must do something, either that or that, or somehow join them both together. And I said, well, what about if I want to interview a physicist Nobel Prize-winning physicist. What if I want to interview a historian or a politician? No, no, no. You need to stay in in your lane. Just talk to musicians, and maybe talk to some chefs here and there. Well, I'm very glad that I didn't follow any of that advice, <laughs> because I, I I knew that I had the ability to talk to lots of different people. I I just had to put it to the test. So so the first one, the first. Real test was Walter Isaacson, who was episode number one of this show, as you remember, and we did that interview before COVID, and we were in the studio together. You were there, and it was great. And uh, he said to me afterwards, you know, you know, what's the show called, and and what is this, and how long have you been doing this? And I said, well, I'm not in radio, I'm not in podcasting, I'm I'm a cellist, you know, <laughs> and uh, it it developed from there. I, I each one each one proved that. Uh, Yes, I could talk about other things other than food and music, and it took a lot of pushing uh, at various walls for people to unchain me from this sort of lane. You know, you you get pigeonholed as X, Y, or Z, and then people like to think of you as, as, oh, it's that guy. But I've been able to talk, as you said, to lots of different people, and they want to keep coming back because the conversations are so good and they're cliche-free. I... just hate this whole world of speaking in cliches and operating in cliches and you know that's something that i've always tried to avoid and and why do i want to ask the questions that everybody else asks i want to i want to dig down and i want to i want to hear about who the person really is what they're doing and i want to connect what they do to music because music is the great unifying force and i think music has a through line through every different field possible history physics Yes, even politics.
1: Let's talk for a moment about a theme that re- seems to recur during uh, these the podcasts over over the last one hundred. As a matter of fact, this uh, this starts um, this particular podcast starts a new century of podcasts. One of the themes that has been going through has been the lack of education in certain fields, disappearing education. Take for instance. Uh, Music. I remember being in grade school and the wonderful thing would happen, there was a box that the teacher had and in the box were musical instruments that we would pull out every now and again when we were very good and we would get to play things and we would get to play things together as a group, a group of people, which was wonderful. That started very young. And it continued because music was part of the education in the system that I grew up in. And uh, all the way through, all the way through college, as a matter of fact, it was a continuous theme. The other theme was our environment, especially our government, how that works. It seems that that has been lost somewhere in the ether. Uh, I talk to people and they don't know the first thing about how government works. And it it, it amazes me sometimes at the ignorance. And I, I use that word kindly because uh, it, it, it is things that have not been taught and therefore not learned. Now this is a theme that that has been an underlying theme of, of a lot of the podcasts that we have done. Uh, how how do you feel about that?
0: Well, those are two questions, two issues that are deeply disturbing for which I had particular wisdom. I can say on the second one, the lack of knowledge of how this country operates is, is stunning. And uh, it's been... Talked about a lot. You're right, it's been talked about. We, we did a whole panel leading up to the election, October 2020, a whole panel uh, and using the title that Suzanne Spaulding, who's over at the, the big think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm, I'm sure you remember this panel. And we did that along with Ted McConnell and Elizabeth Rinskoff-Parker, who was the general counsel for the CIA. And they are banding together uh, to try to get civics... A renewed importance or some importance on the educational stage of this country and their theme the, the name of the, of that episode was civic education and national security threats and, and the three of them do believe that uh, that is an imperative that we try to teach everybody about the fundamentals of government of this country. And much more recently on this podcast, when we had on Richard Haas, the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, he said his whole next book is going to be devoted to basically that. The idea that our greatest threat right now, and this is him speaking, not me, and he knows a lot more than I do, that our greatest threat right now is not China or Russia or Iran or North Korea, but is the lack of civic education and governmental awareness in our own country. And I don't know how or when that rose to number one. I should have asked him. I'll ask him next time. (laughs) But that is truly scary. That's what they're saying, that the erosion of public trust in our institutions is a direct result of a lack of education in schools about how the government works. How does the judiciary work how do local elections work? How how are elections counted? How is voting conducted? This lack of knowledge, as Suzanne put it, it, erodes the public's trust in our institutions. And if you can't trust elections and you can't trust the courts, you can't trust the country. And that leads uh, to a very dangerous place, especially when all of that is combined with the volatility of social media. How easy it is to spread a message over Twitter that can be seen by a million people. As, as you remember the episode with the great, great legendary First Amendment lawyer, Marty Garbus, and, and he said, you know, 50 years ago, you have a crazy guy screaming in some town square in Wichita, Kansas, and he has a, a sign that says something incendiary, and he's yelling and screaming up on a podium. You know, the, the 10 or 20 or maybe 100 people who walk by will see it. And they'll say, okay, there's a wacky guy, and maybe they'll do something bad locally. But now there's that guy, and someone takes a picture, a video, puts it on Twitter. Two hours later, a synagogue is shot up in New Zealand. You know, and that's where we are. So I think that those two things working together, the the preponderance of people getting their news. Imagine getting your news from social media. I mean, I, I look at social media lots, and I'm on it lots like everybody else, but that isn't where I read the news. I read articles that are linked sometimes, but there are lots of Americans who literally only get their news from social media. Sometimes they don't even click links. They just see what someone they think trusts, posts something, and and they take it and then they maybe copy it or, or retweet it or, or go to the dinner table that night. Did you say did you know what so and so I mean that's that is a really bad place and I don't know how we get out of it now the music education to go back to the first thing you said i uh, do think that we have done a really bad job at highlighting the importance of music
1: and the arts too let me add the arts and the arts Mm -hmm. just in general really
0: everything is about well what can timmy make a career in he has to go study math he has to go study science the arts have been around for thousands of years tens of thousands of years I keep saying that there's a staying power in the arts, in the humanities, that goes way beyond the bottom dollar. When when a kid learns how to play violin in elementary, middle school, and maybe plays through high school, and never was super passionate, but he plays, and he has a good time with his friends, and then he goes on to a job on Wall Street, or goes on to a job as an engineer or a banker. The skills he learned weren't just about learning how to play the violin. They were about learning how to interact with other people, how to have a, a dialogue, how to work with other people, how to build community, uh, in the same way that a sports team does that. It's so ridiculous that, of course, it's always the arts that are blamed. You know, oh, the arts and humanities, there's no careers here. What, as if some great percentage of, <laughs> of high school or college athletes go professional? I mean, give me a break. It's, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's, again, this usual double standard that's held to, to art, and everything else. Uh, why do people play sports in high school or college? They they, they play because they, they want to be the best they can be. Uh, they are taught skills about community, about cooperation. It's the same thing with music. Uh, not all these people, in fact most, are not going to be professional. But it builds richer character. It builds, I think, stronger character. It builds a more diverse workforce. Who wouldn't want educated people? worldly people to be around them. I wish there were a better answer. The idea of you growing up and having this box of instruments, there's a curiosity there. Uh, and remember, when you were growing up, there wasn't a smartphone and an iPad. I don't know what schools are like today. I don't have anything to do with, with schools, but I imagine there's lots of computers and iPads around, maybe even phones. What is the beauty of going to the box and picking up an instrument and saying, oh, what is this? You know, let, let, me, let me see what this is all about the
1: tactical quality,
0: the physical quality. God, I hope that's not gone.
1: Well, it seems to be. There are, You're optimistic. <laughs> uh, yeah, me? No. Uh, like I said, you know, if you want my opinion, I'll be more than happy to sell it to you. Uh,
0: sell me on your opinion. <laughs> what, what, gone? What do you, does gone mean gone?
1: The, the, the whole idea of going to school to pass a test, simply to pass a test, otherwise there will be no funding, Uh, seems to be counterproductive to me. That's where I see our school system going. That's it, that's all. Now, the test used to be the test to get into college. Okay, that's fine. All right, that's wonderful. But if the only thing that you do is teach the test, then you're not giving your students a well-rounded education.
0: Is this all just a big numbers game? Is, it, is that all that, that we've become as country, just
1: numbers? I think so. Now, we were talking earlier about uh, social media, and it seems that <laughs> the profession of the journalist is being undermined by social media because uh, we're all looking for something on our own interest. And a lot of times that's all we look at just something that we are interested in to the to the detriment of everything else. And that doesn't make a well-rounded individual. Now, that idea of being a well-rounded individual, accepting diverse ideas, not to espouse them so much as just being able to accept them and make our own judgment, is an idea that I think is being lost.
0: I think you're right. I think I think that people are going into much more tribal divisions, maybe not more than before, but I think it's easier to do so with the Internet and with social media. And I think that it's very easy to block out what you don't want to hear. But there was there was a while back on here, I keep referencing people who've been on the show because I think we've had sort of the best people you can possibly have, so what, why not? A while back there was Dennis Washburn talking about the tale of Genji, that medieval Japanese uh, more than a thousand-page novel written by a, a quite highly placed woman in the high-end court. And, and there were very disturbing scenes in it, of rape scenes and incest. And I said to him, you know, how do you teach that to a 19-year-old? A lot of professors these days especially would, would turn away. or would say, oh, no, kids, we're going to skip that chapter. Uh, he says you can't shirk away from things you don't like. You, you can't pretend it doesn't exist just because you don't like it. Because great art is so powerful that it'll be there. And uh, and I think the same is true with ideas. There are ideas you don't like, and just because you pretend they're not there doesn't mean that they're disappearing. And and people are so quick to shut out anything that doesn't exactly correspond with what they believe or what they think they believe or what they've been conditioned to believe that uh, it's so easy to say, oh, he said that one thing, and therefore he's on the other side of, of the seesaw than I am, i'm not going to have anything to do with him but it's 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 a lack of nuance that bothers me so much a lack of any ability to to hear something that doesn't correspond with exactly what you believe isn't it boring to only be surrounded by people and ideas and concepts that are carbon copy of yourself uh, who who wouldn't get bored with that
1: now. That's the negative side of the whole thing. Now the positive side of the whole thing is that we can be exposed to new ideas and wonderful ideas and wonderful methods of doing things that we would never think about. And that is another part of social media also. And if we are wise as human beings, uh, this is where we thirst. This is where we drink. This is where we should uh, look. This is where we should feel. This is where we should gain our understanding. And it's all out there. And that's a wonderful thing.
0: I couldn't agree more. I don't think social media is inherently bad at all. I was thinking about all the things you can do on it. Think about YouTube. I remember when when I was a kid, if I wanted to see old... uh, Master classes of Pablo Casals that he gave in Berkeley in the 60s, or I wanted to see the old conductors. There was a great program made, the, the great conductors of the Bell Telephone Hour, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. If I wanted to see that, I'd have to go to the library, to the great music library over at Dartmouth and take out a VHS tape uh, and come in, you know, and hope that, that it wasn't damaged or the VCR would work and all that stuff. And, I mean, look at YouTube now. I can see the... Great riches of all of that, right here at my fingertips. I remember when YouTube first came out, and you couldn't see. I think the maximum clip length was maybe like five or six minutes. And to watch a Beethoven symphony, you had to go through like you know, fifteen <laughs> different parts: one, two, three, four, five. Just get through one movement. <laughs> now we have these incredible wealth of, of all kinds of music, all kinds of everything, at our fingertips. So if only people would watch, you know, a documentary now and then instead of uh, tweeting some ridiculous thing, uh, or spreading some falsification. I mean, where can we direct our energy? Don't we, don't we have a curiosity? I, I, I hope we do because it's, it's there. I mean, even look at, at Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram and all these great people putting out videos of playing, even TikTok of playing, playing cello, playing piano. A, a, a Sea shanties is one thing that's huge on TikTok right now. There's someone, I forget, I think from New Zealand, uh, who who sings little sea shanties. And, and young kids, like 8 to 12 years old or something, are crazy about them. Isn't that a great musical education? It's wonderful.
1: Now, to, to sort of round this out, what's on your bucket list coming up here?
0: Oh, let's see. Coming up here, well, for Talking Beats podcast, we have so many great uh, people coming up, uh, extremely interesting people, um, as we always do. Uh, I think people are going to be very, very... Uh, happy and uh, intrigued to see who's coming up. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at a book right here, actually, that, uh, a woman who's who's going to be coming up soon. And the book is called The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. And it's by a woman who's a who's a scientist and, and, and studies the history of of oceans and seashells. And um, the publisher sent me this book, and I, I found it just beautiful. I thought, wow, that is such a nice break from... Uh, politics and the pandemic and everything—not that we do lots of that—but it was just something like that is is very interesting, and I think it's going to be a great conversation. On my docket, more concerts, um, but more conversations. The, the the podcast was not a COVID project. It was started. I make the distinction. Yes, it was started during COVID, but the idea was more than five years old. I found an email from October 2015 talking about basically this show. <laughs> uh and now it hadn't been done until i think may 2020 uh but it was not uh, oh i'm sitting at home bored during covid what do i do oh i'll start a podcast no 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 it was uh, sort of the idea was there old idea uh and i was lucky enough to twist your arm into coming along for the ride and um i sure am glad i did so
1: well that's all wonderful and good and uh of course i'll be looking forward to uh to working on these particular episodes that are coming up. Brand new century of podcasts. It's going to be wonderful.
0: Doug, I'm so glad you agreed to do this with me. Um, I think we can um, maybe do it again in the future. Who knows? There's, as I always say, there's a lot more to talk about, and, and it's a great pleasure to, to hear you and talk to you. You have a pretty good voice yourself.
1: Now I'm going to disappear behind my curtain of anonymity and to carry on. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuck. The original theme music is by Ronald Barkham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosey, and Doug Christian is executive producer. We invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's patreo ncom slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.